Well, it is Black History Month, but we don't uh, relegate our examination of a black history here on KUCI to just one month. Nevertheless, we will take a look today at uh, Martin and Malcolm and America. While Martin Luther King Jr. saw America as essentially a dream as yet unfulfilled, Malcolm X viewed America as a realized nightmare. But were they really so different in their views? What are the legacies of each figure? What should we take from their teachings, and what should we discard? Here to talk about Martin and Malcolm and America is James Cohn. He's a Charles Briggs Professor of Systematic Theology at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. His many books include A Black Theology of Liberation, The Spirituals and the Blues, and of course, Martin and Malcolm and America, A Dream or a Nightmare, which is a terrific book, and uh, he joins us here on the line. Good morning, uh, Professor Cohn. Good morning. Thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, I'm very pleased to be with you and have this chance to uh, talk about uh, two people who are very important to me. Well, I will confess that I have 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 not quite finished the book yet. So, uh, uh-huh. if if I uh, if I give away the ending, but I'm sure most listeners know, uh, you know, if I if I say something foolish, you'll you'll certainly let me know. But um, why don't uh, you let our listeners know uh, what was the impetus for this book? There's certainly volumes written about uh, both Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X. Why uh, why did you decide to write this book? Well, the the main motivation uh, for writing this book was because of the profound impact that each one had made on my life and as, um, as an intellectual. See, I began my career writing about a black theology of liberation and, uh, uh, and writing about black theology and black power. Well, it was Martin and Malcolm's influence upon my life that led me in that direction because the black in black theology refers to Malcolm X, and the theology in the phrase black theology is derived from Martin King. So what I wanted to do was to bring Martin and Malcolm together because I firmly believe that unless we see these two figures in relation to each other, it's not possible to understand either one of them uh, uh, separately because their, their ministries, their activities, and their visions for America uh, were actually influenced by each other and actually shows the strengths and the weaknesses of each other. So I was motivated to write these book, this book because so many people in America had seen them as enemies, as opposite. And what I wanted to show is that Martin and Malcolm were not opposites. They were actually working toward the same goal, which is the freedom and justice for African Americans. They just went about it a little bit differently, but they separate ways of going about fighting for freedom in this country for African Americans actually complemented each other and corrected each other and deepened each other's work uh, toward freedom. So I wrote the book because no one had, up until this point, had tried to show how closely they are related to each other and how much actually America needs them both both and not just one. 
It seems like uh, history has a, a tendency, of course, to to repeat itself. In in what ways is the the Martin Malcolm uh, dichotomy? And I want to uh, question later whether, in fact, there is such a dichotomy. And I think you're already beginning to question that. But in what ways is this similar to to that between Booker T. Washington and uh, W. E. B. Du Bois? Uh, they are very similar to uh, Booker T. Washington and W.E.B. Du Bois because in some ways you might say that Du Bois represented the kind of militant Malcolm X side in his critique of America, and while Booker T. Washington was more accommodating, in his analysis of uh, and critique of America, but you don't want to stress those analogies too far because Malcolm and Martin uh, represent something very distinctive in African-American history. And you really want to see them mostly in their own time and that's the 1950s and 1960s within the context of the African-American struggle for justice in which there's an emphasis on separatism and also an emphasis upon integration into the society. And so the tension between those two is what really um, uh, uh, deepen uh, our understanding of their relationship to each other and also of their relationship to America and the struggle for justice in this country for African Americans. I want to remind listeners they're in tune to KUCI in Irvine. This is Justice or Just Us. We're speaking with Professor James Cohn. He's the author of uh, many, many books. Uh, today we're taking a look at Martin and Malcolm in America, A Dream or a Nightmare. Without getting too uh, too biographical, is is it possible for you to briefly explain how each figure became part of the the black leadership? What what are their similarities in in backgrounds and and maybe what are their differences that could explain why why one adopted one perspective and the other adopted another? Is is it, is it possible to uh, quickly summarize? Yes, I think it's possible to quickly summarize. I think you have to see them both as ministers. One was a Muslim minister and the other one was a Christian minister. And you have to, so both of them are ministerial leaders. They are part of a, a religious community. And so that's very important to see. But they were, the differences between them is that Martin, Martin was pretty privileged for his time. He, his father was the was a very uh, a prominent Baptist preacher in Atlanta, Georgia, while Malcolm was um, uh, uh, was primarily northern in his origin, grew up in Michigan, and his father was a Baptist minister too, but he was not a very prominent one, and he was killed when Malcolm was only a very uh, at a very early age, about six years old. So uh, Malcolm and Martin represented two different sections of the country. Malcolm geared his ministry primarily to northern blacks, and Martin geared his primarily to southern blacks. Malcolm was working uh, toward a freedom and a justice that transcended integration, while King was seeking integration. And so you have them working in different sections of the country. See, uh, King was 
fighting for an integration in the society in the South, which Malcolm and Northern blacks already had. And so for them, they said the integration that King was fighting for is not as free, does not bestow as much freedom as King seems to think. So there's a contrast in the in geography, and it's a contrast also one being Christian and other being the Muslim minister. Is is there also a a class distinction? Uh, you know, there there's there's a lot of talk in in social movement studies about the fact that uh, uh, nonviolence as a as a, a an approach to to social change is a privilege of uh, middle class status. And uh, were Northern blacks better off? No, I don't think Northern blacks were any better off than Southern blacks. But I would say this: that that um, uh, our Northern blacks had a had a experienced a freedom in society that Southern blacks were seeking to achieve, and the Northern blacks themselves had perceived that the freedom that they had experienced is not the freedom that they thought they were going to get when they came from south to north. So Malcolm is articulating the frustration of northern ghetto blacks who themselves have the right to vote in some sense and certainly can go into, uh, you know, stores that they want to go into, but they don't have the money in which to buy and which to live where they want to live. So the freedom that southern blacks were fighting for is not a kind of freedom that northern blacks themselves uh, uh, understood to be the kind of freedom that, you know, that they had thought they were going to be uh, receiving after moving north. And so it is a class distinction, but uh, it is not a clear-cut class distinction. It's more distinction between north and south. That is, blacks coming north from the south and experiencing integration and discovering that they did not quite have the freedom that their southern brothers and sisters thought they would have by just taking down segregation walls. On page 26 of your book, you write that uh, Martin came to see racism not as, as personal, but as, as structural. Did Malcolm share that perspective? Yes, Malcolm saw that perspective much earlier than Martin King did, actually. And see, Martin King was optimistic, much more optimistic about America because Martin King saw America as primarily defined by the Declaration of Independence and by the Constitution and by the laws of equality and justice in the society. And he had he was optimistic initially that that could be achieved, while Malcolm was never so optimistic as that. Malcolm, living in the North and having achieved the integration that Martin King was fighting for, knew that that integration was not going to bring the kind of freedom that most Southern blacks thought they were going to get. And so as a result, you have a sharp distinction between what freedom actually means. And so in that sense, you get a sharp difference between initially between Martin and Malcolm. But what you would discover if you read the biographies of their lives very carefully is that Martin and Malcolm actually moved toward each other. That is, Malcolm came to see that voting and, and integration was not quite 
so negative as he had thought it was because after he left the nation of Israel, he started moving toward the civil rights movement and beginning to see that the freedom that they were achieving was not quite as negative as he thought it was in the past. And King also began to move toward Malcolm. King began to realize that, you know, uh, that just integration alone was not going to bring the kind of freedom that he had expected. And therefore, he began to see that economic rights was just as important as social rights. You know, I think you bring up some really important points because it, it seems that, uh, you know, w- regardless of what the topic is, I think it's, uh, you know, Gore Vidal talks about, uh, characterizes the United States of America as being the United States of amnesia, that we have, you know, selective memory. And it seems that the legacies of both Mark- Martin and Malcolm uh, if I could refer to them by their first names, um, it seems that uh, their legacies have been really reduced to just a couple of sound bites, whether it's, uh, you know, the I have a dream or uh, by any means necessary. And yet, you know, Martin certainly uh, spent a lot of time uh, toward the end of his life uh, criticizing the Vietnam War, working for the rights of uh, you know the poor and, and, and sanitation workers, mm-hmm. and uh, certainly Malcolm X, of course, one of the most important parts of his uh, his autobiography is, as you point out, leaving the Nation of Islam. Um, I guess the question that I have then is, in in the American imagination, there's this dichotomy between the two that one advocated pure nonviolence while the other was was more militant in his approach is this an oversimplification Yes, I think it is. Malcolm X did not advocate violence. It's very important to uh, um, uh, emphasize that point. And there's no instance, certainly after he became a Muslim minister, of him uh, uh, committing violence against anybody. So Malcolm advocated self-defense. Malcolm did not believe that when people are attacked that they should uh, 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 not fight back. Now, King, King uh, advocated integration and nonviolence, but King realized that in a social movement, you cannot advocate violence as a way because violence for King, you know, creates more violence. And King believed in nonviolence absolutely. Absolutely. And he believed in it no matter what. Now, uh, in personal relations, that is, when a man is defending his children and, and when a man is defending his wife or his family or his home, King believed that a man had a right to do that, but not in a social movement. See, King used nonviolence primarily for social movement. And in a social movement, King was committed to nonviolence absolutely because he didn't think that you could get social change, political change, through a violent revolution. Now, uh, Malcolm X did not advocate violence in a social revolution. What he advocated was self-defense, and that is a people's right to defend themselves when they are attacked. But King emphasized that even self-defense, is not a good strategy when you are engaged in organizing for social change. Why is not a good strategy? Because there's a thin line, says King, between self-defense in a social demonstration and outright 
violence. So he advocated nonviolence in social demonstration no matter what. But he did not advocate nonviolence for a man trying to protect his home and his family in a private situation from a thug or from some violent individual that's trying to rob him or something like that. So you have to be careful what you're talking about with King and Malcolm when it comes to nonviolence and self-defense. Neither advocated violence. And Both I th advocated the right of self-defense. Malcolm in all instances, King in private instances. But King was nonviolent in social, political change, a demonstration, no matter what. And I think that that's a really important, uh, important point, so I'm glad that we could... Uh we could make sure to, to clarify, you know, it's interesting because the same misconceptions kind of apply to, to Gandhi, who, of course, uh, was a, a source of inspiration for King. Yeah. Uh, Gandhi had written, if the choice is between, uh, you know, uh, cowardice and, and violence, I'll choose violence. Of course, he was then quick to point out that in life, there are never these these false dichotomies. There's a whole range of options in between just simply doing nothing and rendering oneself a victim and outright violence. And there are you know boycotts and and uh, you know grassroots organizing and nonviolent resistance and and uh, you know it's that word passive. I think that uh, that rubs a lot of uh, a lot of people the, the wrong way because there really is nothing passive about nonviolence, as uh, I think. Uh, Gandhi and, and King and so many other people have, have pointed out. At the same time, self-defense is, is not the same thing as advocating violence. That's right. That's right. And that's why King uh, emphasized that his strategy was non-direct uh, 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 non action. Non-violence is a form of direct action. Non-violence is being active. In fact, for King, is being more active than the violent one because you're taking, you're getting rid of violence by absorbing it. And for King, it was not being passive. It was the most active form of social change that you could have. So there seems to be this perspective, and I think you're, you're doing a good job of um, demystifying or, or setting the record straight. There's this perception that... Uh, the two did not regard each other in high esteem. Uh, to what extent is that correct? And uh, maybe you could set the record a, a, a straight. Well, that is absolutely incorrect. Both had a high regard for each other. That is, there are plenty occasions in which Martin and Malcolm actually expressed strong affection and appreciation for each other's work. They were just um, uh, working in a setting and in a context in which just to be together would symbolically uh, cause much difficulty, especially for King, but also for Malcolm, too. But there are many occasions in their private letters and etc. in which Malcolm and Martin are expressing uh, strong affection for each other. One occasion, of course, is you can find out what they thought about each other from Alex Haley, because Alex Haley interviewed them both. 
for Playboy magazine, but also for other writings that he had done. And you know, it was Alex Haley who uh, was the main writer for Malcolm's autobiography. And Alex Haley has given many instances in which Martin and Malcolm are talking to each other through Alex Haley. And they are always asking Alex Haley to express to the other how much they appreciate and how much they care for each other. They always ask, what is the other saying about me today in a very laughing and a very lighthearted way? So they had a profound, deep appreciation and respect for each other's intelligence and each other's commitment for justice and freedom in the world. We're talking about Martin and Malcolm and America, A Dream or a Nightmare, which is a terrific book by Professor James Cohn, available at Orbis Books, published by uh, Mary Knoll. And uh, listeners of KUCI will recognize Mary Knoll from Voices of Our World. Um, to, to bring us up to the present date and uh, the legacies of the two leaders, um, I was wondering if you agree with... with the characterization that, uh, from my perspective, it seems that Malcolm X has captured the imagination of America's youth and uh, perhaps of America's black youth in particular. Uh, I know I picked up Malcolm X's autobiography uh, being a white Jewish young man <laughs> at the time uh, uh, from listening to Public Enemy. And uh, Public Enemy, of course, has uh, terrific lyrics, but they also included in, in the liner notes of all of their, uh, their, their CDs a list of recommended readings, kind of like as Rage Against the Machine does today. And uh, there were so many references to Malcolm X that I, I picked up the, his autobiography that you mentioned that, uh, through Alex Haley, and um, that was it. And uh, then you have certainly Spike Lee's movie X and... Uh, so many of these these sound bites that maybe appeal to uh, the younger generations that uh, are not necessarily in for the long struggle of nonviolent resistance. Do you agree with that characterization? Yeah, I think that is absolutely correct. That is, uh, and that's a reason for that. That is King being more appealing to middle-aged and older people in the society, the more establishment uh, people in society, both in black and white communities. I have spoken on Martin and Malcolm in many different contexts, and what is most amazing is college, university, younger-oriented people, they always are more attracted to Malcolm X than they are to Martin King. And usually that's because they really only know the King that's being imaged and projected onto America by the main corporate establishment, mainstream America. And that group um, uh, are that group is attractive to Martin King. But Malcolm X attracts the younger college, uh, high school-oriented people. Why is that? It's because Malcolm is a lot more blunt and bold in his characterization of the hypocrisy of America in terms of saying one thing and doing another. Malcolm is 
bold and blunt and uncompromising in the way in which he point out the contradictions in the social political life of America. King is more sophisticated. His way of describing it is just as sharp, but he uses language that is much more appealing to mainstream America and much more appealing to corporate America. That's why the society made King's birthday a national holiday. Now, you don't think they're going to do the same for Malcolm X. I tell you, absolutely not. Why? Because Malcolm is a lot more blunt in the way in which he characterized the contradictions in the country about its uh, claiming to be a land of freedom and justice and actually being the opposite. So, young people in the early part of their lives are more attracted to that blunt way of speaking. The older they get, the less likely they are going to be attractive to that language. One of uh, the, the most memorable, again, I've, I've, uh, I have not made my way through the end of the book yet, but one uh-huh. of the most, uh, the most memorable uh, quotes or passages is on page 77, and you, you point out that for Martin, uh, nonviolence didn't mean passivity or doing nothing, as you know, critics seem to suggest. Uh, he was into you know nonviolent direct action, but uh, Malcolm and the Black Muslims were were criticized for talking loud and doing nothing. And you say not so with Martin. I teach uh, a course on uh, nonviolence and civil disobedience, and that's one of the things I try to point out to students that um, if if we take a look at their life and at the end of the day. For all of the criticism of of nonviolence, it was Martin who was actually out in the streets uh, putting his body on the line, not to suggest that that Malcolm didn't put his body on the line, as we know. But um, is that a fair assessment? Am I reading too much into what you're suggesting? There's, I, I guess what I'm trying to suggest is um, one of the books that I use in, in teaching that course is Eric Hoffer's book, The True Believer, yes. where he tries to talk about you know, how social movements form. And mm-hmm. he makes a distinction between uh, the man of words, or I guess we could say the woman of words as well, yes. the, the person who, who does a lot to discredit the status quo, but uh-huh. the, but that's a person who usually isn't the doer. Yeah, and so there's the the man of words, and then the the fanatic. And while it seems that most of us would assume that Martin Luther King would be the man of words, and Malcolm the fanatic, simply because of you know his his blunt rhetoric. At the end of the day, is it fair to say that that Martin was more of the doer, and and Malcolm was more of the talker? Well. I wouldn't quite put it that way, but I could understand what you mean when you put it that way. And there is some truth to it when you put it that way. But it would be a mistake if that's all you saw within that. Let me just say what I think about Martin and Malcolm on the point that you just made and what that difference would mean. What I would say is, is that Martin King was a political and social revolutionary with nonviolence. What, he, what I would say, you are right when you say Ma- Martin King did more to change the social and the 
political structures in America through nonviolent social change. He did more than anyone. And in that sense, when you look at it in terms of the laws that were passed, voting rights laws, and, 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 and laws dealing with social accommodation and political rights and equal justice in the society, in terms of transforming the social political life of America, nonviolent direct action by King was a doer. And Malcolm was not. But what I would say about Malcolm is that Malcolm was a cultural revolutionary. That is to say, Malcolm didn't do much to change the social political structures in the country, but he did more than King to change how black people think about themselves. Malcolm changed, enabled us to move from Negro to black. He enabled black people to think of themselves in more of self worth. He, he, King taught us to love white people, but Malcolm taught us to love black people. That is, we moved from being colored and Negro to being proud black people. And that's largely because of Malcolm. And Malcolm changed how black people thought about themselves. He helped them to love themselves in far more than anybody else in this land. And so, today, you hardly have no Negroes walking around in this country. No people who will call themselves Negroes. Not many, anyway. Most of us are, ne are black and African-American. Why is that? That's due to Malcolm X, not Martin King. So you might say that King changed the political life of America, but Malcolm changed the cultural life of black people. Therefore, you have black studies program, you have um, uh, African-American studies program, you have all of this cultural revolution that emerged out of black power and in the educational and the social life of this country, and that cultural change of how black people think about themselves is something that is due largely to Malcolm X, and that was done through words, through, through a way of of understanding yourself that defines yourself by yourself and not a definition that comes from somebody who is trying to control you. So that is how I would describe the distinction between the contribution of Malcolm and Martin. Martin, political contribution. Malcolm, a cultural contribution. Professor Cohn, I told you that uh, I would keep you about a half hour, but I was wondering if we could uh, hold on to you for just a few more minutes for a few last questions, if that's all right. Okay. Um, and I, I think that that's, uh, you, you kind of just answered uh, a couple of my last questions, uh, particularly what are the legacies of each figure. I think that uh, that last summation really, really uh, provides that. Uh, one taught us to, to love blacks. The other taught us to love whites. One was, was uh, you know, Malcolm was kind of more looking inside one's person, oneself, and, and Martin was looking at, at outside oneself as well. Is that a fair? Yes, yes. See, Malcolm changed how black people thought about themselves. King yeah. helped us to change how we think about the society and America and make us change that country so it... Uh, so it will uh, 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 be much more uh, political, 
politically and socially comfortable to us. So Keynes is found in the social structures, and Malcolm is found in the structures inside you. If those are the legacies of each figure, what uh, that, uh, uh, you know, just part of their legacy, what would you suggest that maybe we, I don't want to maybe use the word discard, but um, what are things that we've, we've, lessons we've learned from each that, uh, of things to be done differently? And that's maybe a really tough question. Yeah, that's a tougher one. I, I can think of more what they did that is much more positive. See, I, you know, if you want to look at it, they said, where is the contribution of King? Of course, you wouldn't. All you have to do is look at the Congress, the Senate, and the whole, you know, local state politics. You can see black Americans who would not be in political offices today if it had not been for the civil rights movement. See, for Malcolm X, you look at uh, all the different, whether you go to Harvard, Yale, uh, uh, Princeton, or any of the Ivy League uh, colleges, you see black studies programs. You wouldn't have that without Malcolm X. Well, how about this then? Because this is really where, where uh, I think, uh, now this might be a tough one, but uh, the, the subheading of your book or the subtitle is uh, A Dream or a Nightmare. If one looks at statistics, uh, it's it's pretty shocking. And uh, I'm here in California, which has the uh, the infamy of having the third largest criminal justice system in the world. Uh, one in uh, there are more African Americans behind bars in this state than in colleges. If mm-hmm. one looks at the earning potential, the life expectancy, so many of the the social indices. One sees that uh, in 2007, African Americans are uh, still uh, not as uh, well off on these indices as uh, as whites. Uh, has the dream been brought to fruition, or uh, has the American dream really become realized as a nightmare? Well, it's a, it's a dream for you know for the for the well-off black. It's a dream for them, but it's not a dream for the, for the one-third of the black community that's at the bottom. It's a nightmare, and that's what Malcolm X was talking about. And you see, King got jobs for people like myself, the people with education, and uh, people who are already advantaged. See, what it was is that I used to could not teach at Union Seminary. I, I, t- I used to couldn't teach at Columbia, Harvard, or Yale so easily, you know? Now I can. They want us all now. But they don't want the, that one-third at the bottom. So it's not a dream for them. It's a nightmare for them. That's why you got to read Malcolm and Martin. Martin, you know, uh, uh, he got a lot of jobs for politicians, but he didn't get many jobs for the, for the people who, ain't, who, who don't have a job. And so that's, it is a nightmare for them. That's why when people ask me, is it better? It all depends on who you look at. It's better for the people like myself. Yes, it's better. So but it's it, not better for the people who, who are at the bottom. That one-third in the black community at the bottom is worse off for them today than it was when, uh, in the 1960s. So then there's uh, William Julius Wilson has a, a book with the provocative title of The Declining Significance of Race. Yes, yes, I know that book. Has has race, if, if what you're saying is, is in fact the case, has race become less 
uh, of a form of discrimination today as, say, class, that if you're a, a, a well-to-do uh, a middle class or, or well-to-do African-American, you're, you're accepted, whereas if you're, you're in the, the bottom third, as you point out, then um, you're not. Is, is, is there any relevance to that title, the declining... See, I, I think, see, the question is not whether white people accept you or not. That's not the question. I don't care whether anybody smiles when I walk by and greet them or not. The question is whether I have a job and whether I have, you know, equal opportunity within the society in terms of what services are available. And so in that sense, the only thing I, I would say that for it's always been true that people with more blacks with more money could always go to places where they were more accepted. That's what money lets you do. But it should be applied to everybody, no matter what or where they are. See, so the issue is, is, not, is not whether, you know, white people individually accept me. The, the issue is, is whether the social services and justice within this society is available to all without, regardless to race, creed, or, or, you know, or, or certain basic economic rights that everybody should have. So that, to me, is the basic issue and it's a combination of class and race it's not just uh race but neither is it just class it's a combination it's inter interconnected of the two and if you happen to be poor well that's going to come down on you no matter whether you're black or white but if you're poor and black well, that's really going to hit you. Yeah. It's going to hit you much harder. But just because you're poor and not black doesn't mean it's not going to hit you hard. It's going to hit you hard. Absolutely. But it hits you harder if you're poor and black, too. Absolutely. And it's, the, it's again, it's the tendency to, uh, to oversimplify. After uh, Katrina hit when Kanye West said that George Bush doesn't care about black people, well, I, I thought it was, uh, you know, a very bold and, and daring thing to say. I, I kind of cringed because I thought it was a, a gross oversimplification and anyone would look at his cabinet at the time and, and see that he did in fact surround himself with, uh, with uh, a very diverse cabinet, not diverse ideologically, of course, or, or economically, but uh, racially and ethnically. And, and really, it, it, if, if I could repeat Kanye West's quote, it would be, he doesn't care about poor, minority, you know, there would be a whole bunch of isms behind that one statement. And so I think that, uh, you know, it's, there's a tendency to just make things about just race or just class or just religion or, or whatnot, and it's really much more complex than that. Power is, is much more complex. Yeah, I think it is, but you know, you can't expect ordinary people to be able to make all those sophisticated. Yeah, a- absolutely. I, 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 I college and you know, and read a lot of sociology texts and stuff. We can make all those things, but most people speak from their gut, and I think that's what Kanye West was doing, speaking from his gut. Absolutely. That, like, that George Bush, or like just like the white people I knew in Arkansas, and I knew they didn't love black people, but that, but the society just can't be analyzed simply in that way. Absolutely. And and again I, I credit him for, for doing that. Finally, and this is this is a, a, a question to uh I suppose to play devil's advocate. I, I really hate this question but uh yeah. I I often feel I should ask it. Yeah. There there are people who who say, Where is the black leadership today? Yeah. And I gotta tell you, as uh as a white progressive, I don't know where my white leadership is today. <laughs> Yeah, so so I think that there's 
it's patronizing to assume that one sector of the population uh, needs leadership as opposed to another section of the population that, that doesn't. So, so I, I understand, I, I think, the inherent racism in the question. But that being said, when you hear critics, uh, some conservatives, some from the African-American community, suggesting that uh, where is the Malcolm of today, where is the Martin of today, you just have Jesse Jackson or Al Sharpton and... Uh, you know that that they can't hold a candle to the legacies of uh, of of their predecessors. How do you respond to people who criticize the lack of of black leadership? Well, I think that's true in many communities, and you cannot expect any community to provide always the leadership that it needs. You know, you might ask, where is American political leadership today? You can't compare George Bush with Abraham Lincoln, right? So, I mean, uh, I mean, it's, it's really pathetic. I mean, when I look at George Bush and see what his leadership skills are and what he has done since he's been in office, I want to know where are the Republican leadership or where is the Democratic leadership, where is the white leadership that we are producing leaders like George Bush. Absolutely. So, so it, it, I think it's across the board. I think the society tends to produce the leaders that its values produce. And America has too much values in the thing that do not produce the leaders that we need or want. So that is true not only just for the white community, it's true for the black community too. At the time in which you had King and Malcolm, you also had John F. Kennedy. He looked better than the George Bush. So I just want to say, I think when you ask about the leadership, it's not just where is the leadership for the black community, because America produces both leadership for black, white, Hispanic, you know, Asian, Indian, you name it. The whole society and its families and its uh, towns and communities create that leadership. And when we ask where is that leadership, we are asking about where are our values. Why is it that our schools are not producing the kind of leaders, shall I say, uh, like Martin and Malcolm? And that's largely due because we place values in other places than they were when Martin and Malcolm came along. The book is Martin and Malcolm and America, A Dream or a Nightmare by James H. Cohn. I believe it's the gold standard on uh, comparing the legacies of the two. And uh, Professor Cohn, I want to thank you so much for joining us this morning. All right. Thank you so much. And I hope we could have you on again soon. All right. Thanks very much. And take care. All right. Bye-bye. And